Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Scott Hanselman, and he currently works with Microsoft and its web platform team. And he's also a teacher and speaker and host of numerous podcasts and a YouTube channel. I'm very interested to find out more about how he got to software engineering his favorite speaking topics, and of course, the podcast and YouTube channel. Welcome to Teach the Geek interview, Scott. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. First question, where did your interest in software engineering come from? I think when I was 10 or 11, there was a, a programming language called Logo. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Remember when there was a, a little turtle that looked like a triangle, and you would you would show up on the screen as a triangle and you would write a little language and you'd say, you know, forward 10, left 90, forward 10, left 90, and it would go draw a square. And then you could go and write a for loop and basically draw like flowers because you'd make it draw and you'd learn about angles and, and spirographs and stuff like that. And that was cool, but they made us all learn that. It was one of those little throwaway classes. But then they had this kind of little kind of kind of a robot it was it was the 80s so it wasn't super fancy but it basically was like some kind of a I'll use this robot as an example like some kind of a robot with a sharpie like a sharpie pen and then they had a big giant piece of butcher paper and then it was the relationship between hey we just made this flower on the screen now let's put the robot on the ground and then have the robot draw on a big piece of butcher paper. And it was the connection between software and hardware that, that clicked. And then at that point, I started to realize that software engineering was, was power. So I like to use it to, to empower people. So automation, being able to do things that one human can't do. That's when I think I got interested. So really support from teachers early on, I would say. Oh, okay. That's, that's pretty cool. And then obviously you, you end up working in the field. Was your impression uh, or the, the work that you actually did, did it match up to what you thought it would be? <laughs> There's a lot more, a uh, lot more squishy bits, uh, meeting with humans and sitting on whiteboards and figuring stuff out. I think that the, the, the glamour of software engineering when you watch TV shows and movies is a lot of really fast, frantic typing. Maybe there's three or four people on one keyboard or, you know, and mostly software engineering is mostly sitting in front of your computer like this, <laughs> you know, and then sitting in front of a whiteboard like this, you know, so uh, the, the coding part comes in bursts and there's moments of Eureka, but talking to humans is what I spend most of my time doing. You know, when I was in school, I had to take a, a programming class in my freshman year, first semester. And after that class, I knew that software engineering was not for me. I didn't <laughs> have the patience for it. 
because you, you, you write something and then you think it's going to work and then it says it's not going to work and you have to find out where the damn problem is. And I was just like, nah, I ain't got, I ain't got time for all this shit. I, <laughs> I need to do something else. <laughs> yeah, uh, software engineering requires it's just a ridiculous amount of patience. And it's an it's a ongoing wrestling match between is it my fault or is it the computer's fault? Like whose fault is it? And it's just back and forth. Oh, I'm stupid. No, you're stupid. And you, the, the computer. And that loop can be very depressing sometimes. And sometimes you'll do something hard in five minutes. You're like, wow, I'm a genius. And other times you'll be sitting there staring at a screen for a day. And it turns out that you had the semicolon on the wrong line. It's like, why did I just burn eight hours? Because that semicolon should have been over here. <laughs> Calling a computer the, the dumb one. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's well, because smart, it right? Can't, it can't be me, right? <laughs> I'm smart. It must be the computer, right? Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that's wrong with computers is that we, we have set them up with the way the, the interfaces are, the buttons are. You know, when your non-technical parent will call you, they'll, they won't say the computer's broken. They'll say, I did something, right? They feel, we have made them feel like it's their fault. The computer is smart and that they made a mistake. Um, and, you know, bugs happen. So I always remind my parents that it's probably not your fault, whatever, whatever's wrong with the router or whatever's going on here. Yeah, for sure. From, so from all the jobs that, that you've had in this field, how has that prepared you for the one that you have now? <clears throat> Let me think here. I, have, I was an intern for a while. I, mean, I had a lot of jobs, right? Like I made tacos and Salsa, like I had non-technical jobs. I didn't just go directly from school into computers. Um, I think that when I was working as a professor at uh, Portland Community College, I was an adjunct professor. That gave me a sense of empathy, which I think is in some cases missing in the software engineering field. That prepared me the most. Like the talking to humans part. I feel like talking to humans should even be a course. They should teach us that. Like. They had like home ec back in the day, home economics, you like learn how to cook and learn how to iron, learn how to talk to humans and shake their hands and be kind to them and collaborate. Like I don't remember doing a lot of how to collaborate classes that prepared me learning to be a teacher, helped me understand how to effectively communicate with, uh, with other people. That's crazy. Cause I worked in medical devices for a number of years and all the work we did was in teams. So if you, if you weren't collaborating, then you, you were out of a job. <laughs> yeah, so were you set up, you were probably set up for success with that because your work in school and your work as soon as you got to the company was team-based with programming, unfortunately, when we learn it in schools, very often it's like, here are the requirements, disappear for a week and come back and talk to us about the work that you've done. Uh, we, I think I did maybe three group projects within my schooling. So yeah, I definitely agree that there's a lot more collaboration and pair programming is really important as well. Yeah, I've heard about that. Well, it's, a, it's got really interesting how you say that it would be helpful for, for programmers to have a, a class in and how to, how to talk to people, how to collaborate, because, you know, it's not as if when, when, you, when you're talking to people, you, you would want them to talk to you the way you would talk to them in a lot of ways. It's like, you're not a jerk to yourself, so why would you be a jerk to others? Well, what you're describing is such common sense because you're describing the golden rule. Right. And no. like a lot of the problems that we have in technology, a lot of the problems we have online are the very simple. Why aren't you treating people the way you want to be treated? And uh, that's really complicated. But yeah, the golden rule would be a really good thing to apply to group dynamics when working on software. 
what do you prefer just in do you prefer working on your own or do you prefer working in groups when pair pair programming came out in the end of the 90s early 2000s the idea was you would sit in front of a computer and you would type i would type and you would talk and then we would take turns and then you would type and i would talk and that made me, and everyone was like that's stupid two people why don't you all just do your work separately but I felt that when we did that, we would be more than twice as productive. So I really like pair programming. I think two people working together can be as productive as three. And, and I think it's more fun, it's more dynamic, and there's really cool tools right now. Like we have really cool, a tool called uh, Visual Studio Live Share, where you can control my cursor on my computer. Not, not screen sharing, but code sharing. And uh, so I really like pair programming. I think that you and I could solve a problem faster than I could by myself. In pair programming, is it really important that the, the level of expertise of the people that are paired together be equivalent? That is a really good question. It, it's not. In fact, having pair programmers be a different level makes them work better because there's a kind of a Venn diagram that is the, the stuff that each programmer knows and you want them to, to be not a complete overlap, then they'll fight. You want them to have different skill sets. Um, you could have a, a, an early in career programmer who's a really good typist, who knows some interface while the, the senior or the more late in career programmer could be the one who's talking and designing in their head and they're kind of like dictating. Um, the, they, they can learn from each other. So definitely better if they have a different skill level. Interesting. Is pair programming, I know you said it was from the 90s. Is this something that's still used today? Oh yeah, so there was this thing. So that's a, that's a longer conversation, but basically the way that many projects got started was a thing called waterfall. I think you do this waterfall style development in the medical device where it's like, let's plan it, let's design it. And then we move from one stage of the project and we waterfall down. Yep. Um, there was a thing called extreme programming or XP, which was like, well, why don't we fail as fast as we possibly can? So instead of doing waterfall, we'll basically do what's called a scrum and we'll have one week or two week little spins fail quickly. You don't want to fail in medical device implants, certainly. Um, but in software, you can fail fast. You just run a test and it fails and you try again. And then extreme programming was an experiment around uh, that, uh, that time to say, you know, what's wrong with programming? Giving a task to someone and locking them in a closet and shoving pizza under the door might not be the most effective way. Software is about people working together. Um, it's absolutely done today. It's just used in different names. But yeah, um, I think most programmers don't pair program. They usually pair program when they need to crack some hard problem. I know that I call in the big guns when I, when I have an issue and I'll, I'll call my buddy or my friend and I'll say, hey, can you help me work on this together? And then we sit and we, we consciously separate the responsibilities the responsibility of typing, the responsibility of thinking about the architecture, the responsibility of setting up the system. You can even pair program with like three or four people and that's called mob programming. Mob programming. Yeah, I had a, I had a, 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 my, I have a podcast called Hansel Minutes and I had the, a gentleman named Woody Zool who is the person who invented mob programming, which literally means you take like five or 10 people in a room and they all look at the code together and the idea is you would put it on the projector 
and work on the code as a mob. And when more people in the room that have different diverse mindsets where one person is security and one person is accessibility and one person is correctness, then you can catch errors right off the bat immediately. More eyeballs means better quality. That's the theory behind mob programming. Interesting. Yeah. I would have thought that the more people you have, the more opportunity for conflict there'd be because there's more voices. So initially there is more conflict, exactly. And that's where team cohesion is really, really important, right? You have to be able to trust people. If you and I, uh, and we've just met, if you and I were coding something and I say like, you know, that's wrong. Well, that's okay. It's not personal. But if I'm like, well, that's stupid. Don't do that. Now you're starting to feel like that's personal, right? So you and I would build over time a level of trust. And then if we as a team can be kind to each other where it's about the code, not about the, the personality, you won't be offended if I say that I think that might be, might be incorrect, right? Yeah, I guess. It, wow. This is so interesting. I, this is, you know, as I said, I worked in, in medical device, so there was, no, there, was no, there was never really any kind of opportunity for people to, I guess, be just to even say like, that's stupid. I, that, no one's ever said it to me in my life, <laughs> in my working life, like, like I can think of, but Kudos well, to you guys that can, that can take that and can keep going. <laughs> um, I think that this is a, there are, there are kind of like stereotypes in all things, including in, uh, in, in, in work. And I think that software engineers tend to be very logical. And sometimes, and this is a stereotype, they take it too far. And they're a little bit less kind and a little bit more computer-like, like commander data. You know, and you know, every once in a while, Commander Data would say some awkward, mean stuff, and it was because he was being an analyst and not being a human. He was trying to be a human, right? So yeah, computer people tend to um, well actually a lot. So you might make a statement, and I'll be like, well, you know, actually, Neil, in fact, and then it's like that was not really necessary right there. That was not that didn't make me feel good. Why did you do that, Data? <laughs> Yeah, that, that could probably get annoying after a while. Until And then maybe you don't even notice it until it starts happening to you a little bit. <laughs> maybe and then, unfortunately, that can get annoying after 20 or 30 years, and then you just leave tech. And I think that's why we have some problems with folks leaving technology, because like, I don't need to deal with that. Can't we just be cool together? You know what? I think you're absolutely right, because I, I read about these things all the time, about how the, the, the attrition rate in tech can be quite high. And I was curious as to why. But yeah, if you're, if you're you know, always kind of well actuallying people, maybe you get tired of it and you figure, hey, I can do something else. Yep. And being well actuallyed like that, um, or, you know, what about, um, or another big one in tech is, why don't you just whatever, <laughs> right? Let's say that you've been working hard, you know, busting your butt for the last two weeks on a problem by yourself. You show up to review it and I'm like, Neil, why don't you just, so now I've just taken all that hard work and with the word just made oh, you feel yes. as small as you possibly can. <laughs> that doesn't make anybody feel good. Right? <laughs> well, you know what? Probably makes the person that said it feel good. Like I'm smarter than you. <laughs> but, but the person who said it feeling good doesn't move the project forward. That's right. right? So that's a thing we're working on in the tech space because um, as someone who's somewhat senior in tech, I've been doing this for almost 30 years, I want someone who is coming in, a new person, I want our conversations to be on, on the level together. 
it shouldn't be where I'm up here and I'm like, rah, 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 rah. And they're like rah, rah, rah. right? I don't want them to feel less than. They're fresh. They don't know as much, but they also know stuff I don't know. They have fresh ideas, new concepts, new, you know, new ways of thinking that I don't know about. So try to make everybody in a level playing field. Yeah, that's, that's probably for the best. You have a bunch of podcasts. What are they about? So uh, my main show, hang on a second. Hi, friend. Can you, I'm, dude, you're on YouTube. Can you close the door? Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Sorry. My 12-year-old. Um, I have a show called Hansel Minutes because my last name is Hanselman. I've been doing that for 14 years, and it's kind of like NPR. If you ever listen to National Public Radio, there's shows like Science Friday and Fresh Air. Um, that, uh, that show is kind of a talk show. It's very similar to your show. I try to bring on fresh faces and talk about stuff. And uh, I also think it's kind of an excuse to get to talk to cool people. Because, you know, if you called and said, hey, let's have lunch and I could pick your brain. I might, <laughs> I, I might not want to do that, right? But that's different. You're like, hey, you want to come on Teach the Geek? I'm like, let's go. Let's record a show, right? <laughs> So I've been basically like having lunch with cool people for 14 years, over 700 episodes, and nobody's figured out that I'm just trying to figure out how to talk to cool people. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, that pick your brain thing. That's, that's pervasive, man. Everyone, everyone's a, it's a, I'll buy you lunch and get, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of information out of you for, you know, a panini. So and that's a, a really great point. So <laughs> lunches are, there's valid thing. You know, that's a good reason to have lunch with somebody. But one of the things that I think we forget is that, by you and I having this conversation and you recording it, even if five people watch it, that's great. We just, we just like quintupled the amount of people who got knowledge out of the thing. But if we just talk by ourselves and we don't talk where other people can gain that, that knowledge, then right, what's the point? So I really like the idea of if I get to talk to somebody, I can multiply my, uh, my, my ability to educate. Right. Um, I had another show called this developer's life, which was a, uh, a beloved ripoff of This American Life that was, it's still up. Uh, we did a couple of seasons, but it required a lot of editing. Uh, I did a show called Ratchet and the Geek with my friend Lovey, which was a, a, a pod, and that's also still up. Uh, it's a podcast about pop culture and TV shows that she and I would watch. And then I have a video podcast called Azure Friday. And Azure Friday and Hansel Minutes are my two main ones. Azure Friday has over 500 episodes of video content explaining how the cloud works. And then you also have a, a YouTube channel as well? Yeah, I have YouTube as well. And I, I kind of just put it there for when um, someone will ask me a question in email. And I realized very quickly that there's a finite number of keystrokes left in my hands before I die. So let's say you email me and you're like, that was a, here's a great question. I'm like, man, Neil sent me a killer question. I could slap the keyboard for like 2000 keystrokes and send you a, an answer. And then you'd be like, thanks. And I'm like, so I just, I just gave you like 2000 keystrokes and like explain the whole thing. And you're like, cool. One person learned there, but wouldn't it be cooler if I was like, Ooh, what a great question. A question from a from a, from a, a viewer, from a viewer of teach the geek, from a viewer of a listener of Hanselman, it's is a gift. Every question that comes in is a potential new video. So then I'm like, oh man, Neil just sent me a killer question. I'm not gonna send in my free keystrokes. I'm gonna record a YouTube and I'm gonna send you a link to the YouTube. 
making basically every question turn into a fact of frequently asked questions. So when someone sends me a killer question, I'll record a show, throw it on the YouTube and send them a link to it. Same right. thing with the blog. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being magnanimous in that way. <laughs> it's actually, it, it, you could say it's magnanimous, but I think it's actually very selfish because that means that the next person I can just, hey, look, look at the YouTube, right? So, you know, you're asking all of these different questions of yourself, of people. You're building a, a knowledge base of Neil with the Teach the Geek platform that you're building. Uh, so next time a question comes in, hey, how do I get involved in public speaking? Or, hey, how do I do this? Or how do I boost my confidence? Oh, I did a video on that. That's the trick. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great trick. What kind of topics do you enjoy speaking about? I like talking about, um, I'm, I'm a type one diabetic and I use a thing called an open source artificial pancreas. So rather than just manually taking shots, I have a, a, a control loop system that I use and I'm involved in that community. So I've been building diabetes software for 25 years. I started on the Palm Pilot. That's a thing I like talking about. I like talking about how to build systems that work and scale in the cloud. I like talking about personal productivity, how to effectively manage uh, your email and in the inbox of your life. Um, I did a, a, a class for Pluralsight that we made free called The Art of Speaking, that if you have a Pluralsight subscription, or actually if you don't, because I, we made it free, uh, it was a, like a course on how to do public speaking when you're doing technical topics. Um, I think I'm a teacher, so I'll talk to anyone about anything. Wonderful. Have you always been good at public speaking? And if not, what have you done to get better at it? That's a killer question. So I started in high school doing like model UN, model United Nations, um, being able to speak extemporaneously. I did comedy sports, which is like, uh, whose line is it anyway, if you ever saw that show? Mm -hmm. Comedy sports with a Z at the end is a, a class you can take to learn how to think on your feet. A lot of people don't have the ability to think and speak at the same time, which is why people do poorly in whiteboarding interviews, because you can either think or you can talk, but you can't do both. That's actually a muscle that you can build up. Um, like I'm trying to think right now. Um, oh, and I did a lot of theater. Theater, stand-up comedy, um, open mics, musical theater, all of that stuff. You'll, you'll do this show and then, you know, in a, in a couple of years, you'll look back and you're like, oh man, I'm so much better. Like you've been doing this now, what, two years? Something like that, yeah. Right, so don't you feel like if you looked back at a show two years ago, you're like, look how much more fluid this is and how much more, you know, how much, how much more the, uh, the, the flow is. If I look at my, my podcast episodes, I've got 750 episodes right now. If I go back into the early 200, 300s, I'm like, wow, it was very awkward. So just doing it, right? It's exercise. You're lubricating the muscles. Yep. Practice makes progress. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? I'm a big fan of the idea of the story arc. I imagine a bell curve, an arc of a story. And I feel also as you're doing the story arc where there's a crescendo and then a, okay, that was the finale, the finale happens in the middle, and then a, uh, a re-expression of what did we just do? So the story arc goes up and down, and then it loops back on itself. So I'm a big fan of the idea of introduce a concept, 
let it marinate, pause for a second, loop back over the concept, make sure everybody got it, and then move to the next thing. So you're kind of like, it's kind of like stretching, where you like stretch, you go a little too far, uh, and then you back off for a second, you go, okay, what happened there? All right, we're cool. And then you go a little bit too far beyond that, and you go back, back and forth, two steps forward, one step back, circling back over the concepts. Um, I also break things up based on the length of time. So when I do a podcast, it's a 30-minute show. Uh, I believe that I can do a 30-minute show with six bullet points because 30 divided by six is five. That makes each bullet point five minutes. So a 30-minute presentation can be built very quickly with just six bullet points in an outline. Do you ever memorize your presentations? Like the words, like the actual yeah. speech? Not unless if it's, oh, no, if it's in English, no. If I'm doing it in another language, I might record, you know, memorize the opening in Spanish or French or whatever. And like, if I'm in another country, I'll do a little opening in, in, a, in a foreign language. But I never memorize the words. I, I think, I actually have a notebook somewhere around here. I keep, I always, that's actually a thing that some people think you shouldn't do. I always have a notebook in front of me with the, with the, the uh, outline on it because I'm always afraid I'm going to get like confused. And I'm like, oh, I forgot point number five. If you have a really good outline, it's kind of like connect the dots when you're drawing. I don't want to miss a point. So I always have that notebook in front of me on the, on the, uh, the dais or the platform or the uh, podium. So are you one of those type of presenters that prefers to present at a podium as opposed to walking around? No, that's a good question. I like the podium as a home base, but when I'm presenting, I like to think about uh, physicality. So for example, if I were to think about it, actually, I should put my, I actually have a lavalier mic I could use as well. But if I was presenting on the cloud, which is like how computers talk to browsers and stuff, I might walk and have this part of the podium, you know, this part of the stage represent the browser. And I'll talk about how the browser is gonna make a call over to a server and then the server would then catch that call and communicate. So just by simply moving from one side of the stage to the other, I've determined that like, okay, JavaScript and the browser runs here and the code and the server runs there and they communicate back and forth. And that physicality gives meaning. A lot of people when they present and they do public speaking, they just do this rocking back and forth thing. You've seen people do that speaking where you're like, yeah, um, so here's the thing I'm talking about. <laughs> right? there's, there's no information conveyed by me rocking back and forth. Right. <laughs> there is information conveyed. There's an additional dimension to information. If I use part of the stage to make my, um, make my point. Another thing that I think is important is, you know how when you're reading like, uh, like a textbook and then there's a little box in like yellow or color, it's like an aside and it's like, Oh, here's some other notes or context, some other information. Those little boxes that they put in textbooks, they break up the wall of text. You can do that when you're speaking. And there's a, a buddy of mine named Billy Hollis, who was an amazing public speaker. And Billy Hollis called it the box. You're presenting, you're doing your topic, an idea, an aside, a bit of, of, of additional information comes up and he'll go, hang on let me step outside the box for a second. And he would physically move on the stage away from the podium or wherever. And he'd have his little conversation. You know, that was a great point. Let's talk about that. 
all right, let me step back inside the box. So it was a formal expression of I'm stepping away and he physically moved his body to do that. As a, so the information was conveyed by, by the movement. So I think deliberate movement is important. Being able to move on the stage and then decide how you're gonna use the stage. If you sit there with your hands gripping the podium, uh, it comes off somewhat awkward. So I think using your body is important. It's kind of a long answer, I apologize. Oh, no, no worries. Do you ever get nervous before giving a presentation? And if so, oh, yeah. how do you feel with your nerves? Every time. Um, if you're not nervous, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, nervousness is a feeling you should acknowledge that it's there to keep you safe and healthy. Fear exists for a reason, right? Pain exists for a reason. And those things are to tell you that a thing is happening that you should probably know about, right? You, your hand is hot because you're touching something on the stove and the pain happens and you're, you're probably like, and if you did nothing about that, damage would occur. So fear, pain, anxiety, concern when public speaking, it's like, okay, something's happening. I'm nervous. You got to go and say, all right, why am I nervous? Do I know my topic? Am I nervous because I'm not prepared? Or is the feeling that I am registering as nervousness just my body getting me amped up, raising my blood sugar, getting my heart rate? It's prepping me for success. So the acknowledgement of that nervousness, that anxiety might just be that your body's getting you ready to be awesome, not get ready to fail. Yeah, I'm a big believer. If you're not nervous before a presentation, it's a sign that you don't care. You don't care about the delivering it. You don't care what people get out of it. You just, you just you're just up there to, to do something and then get out as soon as possible. Yes, sir. I think respect for your audience is a big thing that uh, if you stop caring, if you stop getting anxious, you're just kind of phoning it in, then you might, yeah, you might have an issue about caring with your audience and maybe take a break. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny you mentioned respect for your audience. One of my, big, one of my biggest pet peeves is people that go over time when they're with their presentation. Yeah, I hate that. It's disrespectful to everybody. Yeah, for sure. And and that's how I look at it. I just wrote about it not too long ago. And some people, they just do it so flagrantly and they just don't even care. And it's like, it's not that big a deal. And you, if you just practiced your presentation, how it was supposed to go beforehand, you know how long it's going to take and you know, what, you know, you know what your bounds are, you know what you, what you need to be under. So when you actually do it, you're under that time. But I, I, People, I don't know, don't yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, I'll go and I'll give a presentation at a conference before all the, the tribulations happen. And um, sometimes the person before me will go long or the boss or whoever does the opening will be like five minutes long. Oh, he went seven minutes. Can you stop your talk at a certain time? And they always feel bad because they've taken minutes away from me. And they're like, well, we, if you know, don't go long because it'll mess up the whole. I'm like, Tell me when you want me to be done. 10 o'clock, boom, 9.58, whatever. Like I have a timer. I have a speaker clock on my, on my phone I'll show you. I have an actual app called Speaker Clock. And I have it count down as to how long I'm going to be um, speaking. And I get it perfect. So like right here, if I go like this, right? So I can go and set up the time, start the speaker clock counting down. I put that and then it'll go green, yellow, red, and it'll tell me what's going on. And that speaker clock shows respect and I always end on time. So that's a very good point. You gotta be able to adjust and that comes down to speaking, uh, thinking while you speak, right? 
Yeah, for sure. And hopefully the people that that are the the organizers of the uh, present of the, the well the events that you're speaking at. Yeah, the event managers. Event yeah, the event managers. Man, yeah, hopefully they they're grateful for someone like you that actually takes that kind of thing into account. Ironically, they're less grateful about the people who are on time. They kind of take us for granted. And I feel that they should be more salty about the people who are late. They just let them be late, but that's a whole other thing. I think the point is to our friends who are learning how to public speak, it shows respect for everyone when you start and stop on time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you've offered quite a number of, of great tips to become effective in, in public speaking. Are there any others that you'd like to share? I think that as awkward as it is, knowing your personal affectations, watching yourself, is hard. It's like brutal. Literally watching yourself and having people watch you. I know for a fact that when I am thinking that I look up because that's where my thinking area is. Mm -hmm. Now, if I found that to be unattractive or weird, or it was like, a, you know, like it's one thing to look up when you're thinking, it's another thing to like pick your nose or whatever, right? But I, <laughs> so if I was doing something that was taking away from the presentation, then I have to take a hard look at myself and say, all right, when I speak, I put my hands in my pocket, or I, I'm doing this, or I scratch my ear, and that's taking away from the presentation. You want to look at yourself with a critical eye, iterate and try again because public speaking isn't just putting your true self out there, it's also acting a little bit, right? We, we dress up when we speak to put our best self out there. Your best self might not say um a lot, so you wanna work on your ums and try to replace ums with pauses, which I'm working on always. So thinking about that with a critical eye, I think is the thing that's, uh, that's the most challenging and the most important aspect of public speaking. Yeah, I was a member of Toastmasters for a number of years and they're oh, real they're real critical with thumbs. It's brutal. And this actually Toastmasters is a kind of pair programming. You're pair programming yourself, you're sitting there, you're watching and you're taking immediate feedback and then applying that in a feedback loop, which you would know about in medical uh work in the medical industry, you know, you absorb all that feedback, you improve the product and you put it back out there. And if you can do that quickly, you can improve very, very quickly, very dramatically. Yeah. And like you, I also look up when I'm thinking. <laughs> I never thought about it as it being, I never thought of it being something that takes away from the presentation though. I, yeah. I didn't know but, but, it, but acknowledging it, acknowledging it means, okay, that's a thing I do. That's cool. You don't have to acknowledge it and feel bad about it. I'm not saying you need to sit here and go like this and just stare into the camera, but I know that that's a thing about me. And I go, oh, I think there's something about going to the left and going to the right means one thing or the other, but uh, that's where my thinking area is. There's a, somewhere up there, there's a Charlie Brown cloud bubble with the thing I want to say. <laughs> For sure. This has been really interesting talking with you, Scott. How can people get in touch with you? So you can go and search for me by my last name, Hanselman, like Hansel and Gretel. I'm on Twitter at shanselman. You can find me at hanselman.com. I've got a blog that's been up for almost 19 years. Uh, and from my hanselman.com homepage, you can find my courses, my books, my podcasts, and my tweets. Wonderful. Everyone that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews, my name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.